And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, a mirror held up to Spiegelman. That's Art Spiegelman, the dazzling comic artist. He and I got together recently to discuss his life and work. Now, if you know Art Spiegelman only through his celebrated Holocaust comic, Mouse, then you have only the barest inkling of what he's done. He began working as a commercial artist while still in his teens, and his twisted creations delighted a generation of kids, including me. He got his own mind expanded during the underground comics movement in the late 1960s and began a period of relentless experimentation. He pushed comics in all kinds of new directions, from soul-bearing autobiography to dense explorations in narrative form. In the 1980s, while creating Mouse, he spent much of his time championing the work of fellow comic artists in the graphics magazine Raw, which he produced with his wife, Francoise Mouly. Mouse was eventually released in book form, winning Art Spiegelman both a Pulitzer Prize and mainstream respectability. Now he's an acknowledged master whose drawings appear everywhere from museums to the cover of the New Yorker magazine, where Francoise is art director. But despite his fame, much of Spiegelman's earlier work has remained out of print. Now some of his best creations from the 1970s have been republished in a new collection called Breakdowns, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Schmuck. Actually, the title doesn't say schmuck, it just has a bunch of punctuation marks meant to stand in for the expletive of one's choice. I chose schmuck. I talked to Art Spiegelman when he was touring the country with his new book. Art, uh, until I read this collection, which is is a re-release of some work you did back in the 70s, along with some autobiographical material in an essay, I thought my first exposure to you was... Um, in a underground comic book I discovered quite a while ago, and then later in in Raw, the the um, graphic art sort of compendium that you and your wife Francoise produced back in the eighties. But now I realize it was far earlier. You worked for Topps Chewing Gum. Absolutely, they were my Medici's. <laughs> I stayed I stayed off of food stamps the way the other underground cartoonists were doing because of the Topps bubblegum work. <laughs> And and you created something uh, that they called Wacky Packets? Wacky Packs, yeah. Wacky Packs. And now collecting the book, actually, like uh, large large size reproductions. And for a generation, it's like uh, probably the most uh, widely seen and beloved thing I could have ever made. And the funny thing is it goes by generation. Like there's a point where I'd be going around talking about my work, and they, they go, you did Wacky Packs? And then if, now, like when I go around, they go, you did Garbage Pail Kids? Exactly. And yeah. like it's part of this frequency of kid culture that doesn't expand outward to adults so it's, or only to the outraged mother or something well wacky packs were these packs that that included these training cards and um and bubble gum and the, the training cards were satirical advertisements for yes toad detergent uh uh, for detergent. cleaning your pet frog, you know. <laughs> like uh, a takeoff on Tide detergent. Yeah, I was just feeding my mad lessons back. It destroyed my life, so I figured I should destroy somebody else's. That's that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, um, and I collected all of them, but the, you had things like JLO, which was the favorite <laughs> dessert of Sing Sing Prison. You had Grave Train, which was a poisonous dog food. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, some... Minute Lice. Uh, <laughs> um, Commie Cleanser. Commie Cleanser. Hostage Cupcakes. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And... 
What did you think of what you were doing at that time to, to kids' minds? I literally just said it. You know, like, uh, MAD really changed my life. It, uh, it, I think it changed American, uh, the American psyche in general. But I felt it very directly with a strong impact. It made me certain that all I could become was a cartoonist one way or another. And I, um, if I can quote myself, there's a comic strip about when I'm first exposed to MAD as a very, very uh, young kid. And uh, in that, there's the time that my mother is taking me to a bookstore and uh, into a drugstore and I see the spinner rack and find this early uh, mad uh, paperback collection called Inside Mad. And there's on it this picture, which is like the ugliest possible picture of a person by Basil Wolverton looking on a cover of Mad that looks like it's Life magazine. I'm saying, you know, she looked a bit like the Mona Lisa and a bit like those Picasso women I'd learned to love years later. But she was the meatball and spaghetti version. She was postmodernism, avant la lettre. She was beautiful. Mad warped a generation in the bland American 1950s. It was saying something new. It was saying the media, the whole damn adult world is lying to you. And we here at Mad are part of the media. And I thought that was actually the koan that kids were left with to resolve. And I think as a result, it's the generation that grew up to uh, uh, question our involvement in Vietnam, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's become a cliche to call art transgressive or subversive, but, but MAD really was. And then it made its way, as you say, into the, these, these kids' entertainments, like these cards that you created and, and other cards that Topps was selling at the time that, that uh, continued that tradition that MAD started of real ugly, ugly images of human beings. Right, that, uh, the Breton line, beauty must be convulsive or it must not be, you know. <laughs> but we were using even some of the same artists that worked for MAD, and uh, it was a specific new current in the culture that, as you were saying, now eh, now everything's transgressive. Rove is transgressive. Right. Paul Rove is transgressive. He probably read MAD. Um, oh, perish the thought. <laughs> but the, the tradition's alive and well. I think The Daily Show and Colbert, uh, they owe a lot to, to the MAD tradition as the Saturday Night Live and as does, say, The Simpsons, you know? Absolutely right. And uh, I think that if you look at American comedy, in order to really, really trace its genealogy, you have to go through MAD. You have to go out of the comedy clubs and into MAD magazine mm -hmm. for a number of years and then back out onto the, into the clubs with uh, Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor and others. Right. It seems like a straight line of a specific, a specific approach to culture. The problem really is that at this point we do have Alfred E. Newman's stupid brother for president, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, Lord. Harvey Kurtzman never dreamed exactly. that it would come to that. Um, you know, y you say you discovered MAD when you were young, and from then on you wanted to be a cartoonist. And you really did become a cartoonist and made your living as a cartoonist all those years. Mm -hmm. Am I right? I mean, yeah. you didn't do it as a side Sometimes it would, you'd have to say living and then snicker, but, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I, I stayed afloat. But, but it meant, um, you know, this is such uh, a devalued art form. It was such an underclass um, endeavor. I mean, for you, it meant working for Topps uh, Bubblegum. It meant um, How low is that on the cultural protocol, <laughs> folks? <laughs> Only slightly above the other thing that I now learned that you did, which was go to the skin magazines, as you call them. Right. I was doing like sub-sub-playboy uh, <laughs> illustrations for their so-called articles and stories, like well, for Dude, Gent, and Nugget. Men's magazines. Yeah. 
Dude, gent, and nugget. What were you yeah. drawing? Oh, gosh, like women with very large mammaries, basically, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sniggering pictures. And when I would do them, I, I do, you know, I was living out here for a number of years, and those illustrations were uh, just the bread and butter to keep me off the bread line. And I would do them with a timer. I just set up a timer. I'd say, I have exactly one hour. If it takes any longer than that, my mind will rot, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I learned to draw faster. I've now forgotten how since, but I was drawing fast in those days. Um, what was your self-esteem like? I mean, like many of their peers, your parents really wanted you to be, what, a dentist, a doctor, something like that? So, yeah, a professional. Dentist was like the second booby prize that they would settle for. <laughs> Cartoonist wasn't in the, uh, in, the, in the list. And especially drawing uh, illustrations for, uh, for adult magazines. I mean, was it horrifying to them? Did they know about it? Well, you know, my mother, let's see, when she died... I guess I wasn't drawing for the skin magazines yet, at least. But with my father, I actually, beyond the skin magazines, I was part of this underground comics world, so I was drawing hardcore uh, imagery as mm -hmm. well. And because of my relationship with my father, there was one point where I was showing him the most uh, obscene fantasy drawing I'd done, done on a commission. And the point was to, like, really upset him as far as I was concerned. <laughs> and I showed him, and his response was actually very sweet, you know? It was like, oh, from this you make a living? <laughs> That is really sweet. I mean, I know your father secondhand through your work, especially Mouse, and um, um, he sounded like he could be pretty hard on you from time to time. That's actually oh, yeah. kind of a gentle. Well, uh, yeah, in fact, there was an response. anecdote that was going to. It's hard to explain this book that I'm traveling around with. It really is hard to explain. But uh, the front part uh, is a series of memories inspired by the old. By looking at my strips from 1972 to 1977, there are all these memories that are conjured up that become uh, kind of a model of how memory works, maybe, and also really genuinely acts as an introduction to why are these comics different than the other comics that were around it, and uh, and what thoughts and aesthetic might have gone into that. It bursts into the memories. But the anecdote I just told was in the original, one of the things that didn't make the final cut is that uh, particular one about from this you make a living. Uh, I like it. I don't know why you cut it. <laughs> well, it had to do with this whole... In oh, see, that's why it's so hard to explain. So this, I did the introduction to help explain this book of difficult comics. Yes. And then I had to do an afterword in prose to explain the difficult introduction. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but what I was doing was I was working in same size boxes, which meant that I could edit. I was jealous of my filmmaker friends who could edit after they shoot. You mm -hmm. know? So I figured if I draw lots of same size boxes and don't worry about where the page ends, well, then I can kind of make things longer, make things shorter. I don't have to start again when I make a mistake exactly. And so since what I was trying to do is model memory, I think that that's actually mm. something comics can do especially well because when you're looking at a comics uh, page, almost by definition, you can see more than one panel. So you see what's essentially the past and then you see what's the future as well as whatever it is that you're looking at. Uh, unlike a movie where you're strapped into a chair and like uh, uh, given a ride, you know. And so for that, I really needed to find a way to like make these memories and then put them in non-chronological order and make sure I hit certain beats and certain uh, important ideas. And when I went this other route through, which included uh, a section about making those bubblegum cards uh, and going back to see my father when he was looking at the very first three-page mouse I was working, mm -hmm. followed by that trip to the Skin magazine, in a way this didn't quite add enough to be worth uh, building into this what I thought was a really efficient train, even though it's a 20-page introduction to a 40-page book. How stupid is that? <laughs> Well, this as this uh, collection um, demonstrates, I mean, you were puzzling over, grappling with, experimenting with all kinds of fairly sophisticated modernist and postmodernist ideas in the comics medium long, long ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were the um, 
oh God, who could I liken you to? The Stan Brackage or the uh, well, those were the people who were yeah. who turned me on, like Stan Brackage, Ken Jacobs, Ernie Gare, uh, the kind of non-narrative filmmakers uh-huh. were the ones that like actually showed me a broader world than my lower middle class bias toward uh, uh, slob culture, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, and when I when I finally learned like how to savor that, it made me figure, well, why can't comics do that too? Because mm-hmm. comics were uh, a thoroughly ephemeral and disposable was their essential nature, and even the underground comics that were surrounding me were done by people I admired. It also had that vibe. It was done on newsprint as a little pamphlet. It was meant to be tossed out. And when I got interested in that, it pulled me in a direction that actually put me, if not at odds with my uh, respected, slightly older peers, uh, it put me in a different zone because uh, a lot of the cartoonists were either totally escaping and denying they'd ever gone to art school, like S. Clay Wilson, Mm -hmm. or or, uh, were like uh, Crum and the others like, brought up in that same uh, slob culture I'd been brought mm-hmm. up in. And it wasn't really about trying to figure out how can you make something complex enough to be uh, worthy of a reread. It wasn't the, the primary aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if people lingered over a lot of the underground comics, it was because they were so stoned that... Uh... Owners to try to count the phalluses <laughs> in any given panel. That's a different thing. <laughs> but you did become... A member of the underground scene, uh, both in, I guess, New York and in San Francisco, where you uh-huh. lived for a time. Yeah. And uh, you have some examples here of you during um, your sort of psychedelic and flower power period, which doesn't quite fit you, you know? <laughs> it was a phase. I grew out of it. As I explained recently, I'm on this book tour, and I had to give a talk in Seattle on Yom Kippur, it turned out. I didn't know. But as there was, and there was an audience. I thought, okay, only Jews are going to come out and listen to me. It's going to be empty. But no, there was an audience. And I said, could you please apologize to your Jewish friends if they're mad at me? It's just, I know it's the high holy days. The problem is I haven't gotten high since 1982. <laughs> How'd that go over? <laughs> well, they liked it, but there are no Jews to boot me down, you know. So. I'm Robert Polly with the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. You're listening to my fall 2008 conversation with illustrator and writer Art Spiegelman, talking about his career in comics. We discussed his latest book called Breakdowns, which gathers some of his major work from the 1970s. Um, Actually, I'd like to hear a little bit firsthand what that underground scene was like at the, in the late 60s, early 70s when, um, you know, the youth movement was still in full swing. Oh, it was an amazing moment. You know, like because of where I was coming from, I really did think of this as when I came out to San Francisco as this is Paris in the 20s. It really felt crackling. Like it wasn't involved in specifically the same uh, discussion that I was eager to have now that I discovered what Paris in the 20s had to offer, but it really did feel like something new was getting born. And the first time I came out here, it was like uh, just in time for the summer of love, you know, like uh, a little bit before. Wow. And uh, and then I'd commute between the college I had to stay enrolled in to stay out of the draft and everywhere else. And it started with me going to the East Village Other, one of the early underground newspapers, while I was still in high school. It had just started. And I showed my work to the editor because I thought I could do better comics than were running in that thing at the time. And he said, this is all right, but could you do something that has some more sex and drugs in it? <laughs> and then, then I knew I had to go to college because I had to learn about sex and drugs somewhere. And uh, came back a year later and began working for the East Village Other. And it was, a, you know, I was just talking about it uh, with the person who drove me here who's about my age. And, like, we're, one can only feel sorry for people who live in a much kind of grimmer moment, even mm. though, yes, we did have the Vietnam War, like, uh, 
shadowing us, and ultimately we had like another really terrible Republican president, but he looks great now in comparison <laughs> uh, back in the days of Nixon. Uh, it was a monster, but a more small-scaled one compared to what uh, the perfected version has been. Um, but nevertheless, the, the kind of social license, the encouragement uh, and, and belief that the world could be changed rather than the world will just kind of either explode and end around you or grind you down to dust was a, a different environment to grow up mm. in. Mm. Um, now, most people think uh, of underground comics, they probably think of Robert Crumb first and foremost, and right? As well they should. Well, yeah, and you were a friend of his at, at, at exactly yeah, that time. I still am. You yeah, know, still, still are. Stay in touch. Uh, yeah, well, he was um, uh, a, the Mozart of comics. I mean, he was like uh, drawing like a grown-up at the age of 10, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, and then just took it from there into new giddy heights. When I talk about comics changing in the 60s, uh, he was single-handedly responsible for a lot of what that opened up. And, and his style, of course, was like the id just sort of opened up and put on the mm -hmm. page, combined with these sort of antiquated drawing styles. That's like the return of the repressed, because at the time that Crumb was coming up, he was moving through the mad styles and bringing things to the foreground from back in the Popeye comics days. But that was very different than that less is more kind of minimalist aesthetic that might be, uh, have achieved its apogee in, in peanuts or something, you know? So, so this was really bringing that blue collar, dirty grit back into people's faces at that time. And he kind of was making comics that didn't have punchlines, that uh, uh, was definitely dealing with all the repressed, not just in terms of graphic style, but in terms of content. And that was uh, electrifying. It was a real new thing for a medium that had been reduced to uh, mere, like, escapist adventure stories or, or, or gags, you know? Mm -hmm. So, if anything, it really set me back in my own development as a cartoonist to see that. I was already groping for something new in comics comics, and seeing how far along Crumb was made me just sort of say, I'm just going to drop acid for a couple of years. I don't, I don't need to do comics. Somebody's doing it better than I ever could. So um, this book here is not my juvenilia. It's the stuff when I came back and found my own place uh, around 1972. I, I feel like I actually found my own voice as a cartoonist. Uh, right. But earlier than that, I was just doing the worst version of Robert Crumb that anybody ever did. You know, just tried to crosshatch like him and make big feet. And what you what you settled on, it seems to me, w was really quite different from from um, Crumb style comics and some of the other underground comic work. You had your share of sort of forbidden taboo stuff, sexual and otherwise, mm -hmm. but yours was very cerebral, very conceptual. Mm -hmm. I mean, you That's, were pl you yeah. were playing with concepts, art historical, art theoretical, literary theory. Mm -hmm. You know, in a very, very detailed well, yeah, the way. Post, the word postmodernism, as far as I know, didn't exist, but I was kind no, of inching didn't. toward it. All I was yeah. trying to do is become a modernist, you know, like, uh, <laughs> uh, because comics sort of traveled their own parallel path, but they really weren't, uh, encouraged or allowed to take themselves too seriously. And if anything, that was the taboo that I broke. If S. Clay Wilson broke the taboo against having perverts and, uh, 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 amputations and and castrations as subject matter and um uh crumb was opening up uh territories that included playing with fire of the fire of uh racial stereotype cartoons and beyond like i think the taboo that i was breaking had to do with but us cartoonists could be like writers and painters were allowed to do the same thing and that kind of taking oneself seriously that was about the worst thing one could do as a cartoonist and i've been apologizing for it among cartoonists <laughs> ever since well looking at these it's, it's really um it's fascinating to me how you combine 
this, again, very cerebral approach, full of theory, and times you even quote from sort of theoretical works in mm-hmm. the course of these comic strips. But the imagery is very much out of the tradition of pulpy, low-down comics. comics. I love low comics. You, you never try to prove that you're a great artist in the hoity-toity sense in the panels themselves. Oh, and even in the writing, I mean, I try to, like, um, the mad... Uh, uh, vaccine ran deep, you know, so it, I always do feel that part of the job is to not necessarily strain for laughs, but that's just part of a larger conversation that you're having, and one certainly shouldn't avoid them, and I guess in that sense, I'll never make the total leap into the total humorlessness that art can sometimes demand. Um, the best phrasing of it is in the afterword that explains the introduction that explains the book from the 70s. I quote uh, my friend, uh, cartoonist named Chris Ware, uh, who says, like, if you're if you go to a museum and you see a painting and you don't understand it, you assume you're stupid. Mm. If you read a comic and you don't understand it, you assume the cartoonist <laughs> is stupid. And that gets to the nut of it, which is the cartoonist has a job as a kind of entertainer in that role of making ephemeral work where your job is just to be clear, do your job, and go home. You know, you're just uh, not there to, like, make somebody uh, ponder the reason for their existence yeah. or something. Yeah. And uh, as a result, the the kind of calibration is the reader of the newspaper or the comic book should only have to move like one inch toward the artist and the artist has to go five feet toward the reader in order to make it work painters actually go i am the great shaman and you may come close and try to read the entrails and you know i just wanted to like push that calibration back so it would be at least 50 50 or maybe like uh in some of the strips, I'd say, okay, you do 60% of the work, I'll do 40 but I promise you it's there and you can find it and it's not a fraud, which is always my fear about high culture when I don't understand it. Um, and I think that recalibration is what those short strips that were mm. reprinted in this uh, mm. uh, collection um, were about. How did you feel about artists like uh, Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein, especially Roy <laughs> Lichtenstein, who was taking you know, your medium, comics, putting it on gallery walls, getting paid a lot of money, uh, getting fame and fortune, while you were working with, you know, high art concepts as a true cartoonist, right. and probably just scraping by or, or not even that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I wasn't economically envious. I didn't mind <laughs> scraping by. It was fun. Uh, but but really, what I, was, what I resented was the insult to the medium. I take, you know... I was just talking about Yom Kippur. I guess I'm a Jewish American, but I'm also a cartoonist American. I thought that this was like a slur. And when I first saw the pop uh, uh, Lichtenstein stuff, I realized, ah, yes, he's trying to escape from the cul-de-sac of abstract expressionism and drip paintings and find the human figure, which we cartoonists (laughs) and illustrators never lost track of. And uh, he's doing it in like this condescending way because he figured if he draws pictures of pictures, he's allowed to draw humans again. And then he does it by saying, look at comics, the soulless mass media that has ersatz emotion and col- flat skin made of red dots and and rubbery thick in- inexpressive lines and it was uh, it was pejorative. So on the one hand, it did bring comics closer to the mix. It was probably somehow a necessary step for where we finally come to in uh, the 21st century of comics and art, like talking to each other. But it was one where I felt like he did no more for comics than Warhol did for soup. <laughs> And we'll be back with writer and illustrator Art Spiegelman in just a moment. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, back with Art Spiegelman, creator of Mouse and many other comic works. In this 2008 interview, we discussed his career and his latest book called Breakdowns. It's a retrospective look at his work from the 1970s. 
I'd like to look at a couple of um, of, of the pieces that are included in this collection that were originally published back in the 70s. Okay. And this will give uh, listeners sort of an example of what we're talking about when we talk about these kind of this, this kind of mix of high and low, of cerebral and pulpy. Um, let's look at one that you call Little Signs of Passion. Uh, Little Signs of Passion is the one that I thought wouldn't let the book get published even, you know. Uh, and you can explain why, but this has okay. this this comic, like so many of yours, has so many different currents running through it. You have to sort doing of, this on radio is going to like be a real challenge. <laughs> Fiorello LaGuardia had nothing to do back in the <laughs> day when he had to read comics during a newspaper strike on the radio. But the context for this is uh, my friend, another great comics artist uh, named Bill Griffith, had a magazine, yeah, a creator of Zippy, creator of Zippy, had an underground comic that he sort of launched called uh, Young Lust, and it was. A uh, parody of young love kind of romance comics that were still uh, being echoed in the Lichtenstein paintings, in fact. And they were like basically hardcore, very hardcore love comic parodies. And they had all of the quirk and weirdness of underground comics going on in them. But it actually found quite a wide audience because what it was taking on was uh, had a... A parody aspect, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it also it delivered the goods when porn was harder to come by than YouTube, you know, <laughs> or, or than PornTube, I guess. But uh, but nevertheless, so there was going to be an issue of Young Lust with color in it, and I was uh, happy to be allowed to contribute because color was hard to come by in the cheap newsprint days of comics. And on the other hand, what I was interested in at that point was not so much parody as uh, whatever we were talking about, deconstruction. <laughs> I, I didn't have a vocabulary for it, but that's what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. So I did a strip called Little Signs of Passion. And um, what I wanted to offer was for the reader who I thought of as maybe as well as hippies would mostly be men who wore trench coats and wandered around 42nd Street with a copy of Young Lust. <laughs> I wanted to like deliver the goods, so I, I built it around these porno panels that are very photographically drawn, and they exist in a, a, a movie theater called The Roxy, which actually was across the street when I was living on 16th Street in the Mission District in San Francisco. Um, it was like right across from my uh, small... Uh, SRO, basically. Uh-huh. Um, um, and anyway, uh, what I did was I found like uh, I was very interested in how things were. So I was reading a lot of trash books about uh, pulp writing and how one wrote for the movies and stuff. And I found this really crazy and uh, interesting uh hack writer who wrote a book called Trial and Error, The Art of Writing and Selling. You know, He also had another one called Plotting, How to Have a Brainchild. Uh, he also had one that I found later about uh, that carried a lot of anti-Semitic rants, but he was a very interesting character. Sort of how-to uh, how books uh, uh, for commercial writers. Exactly. So I found like the recipe for a love story. Uh, and that b- became part of the text of this three-page strip. And then I decided, okay, uh, I've got that. Now I've got to come up with the characters. So I came up with the three characters that would give you the essence of the... If you're making your own love story, you'd have the instruction manual, you'd have the characters, and you'd have a location for this thing to take place in, and you could kind of make your own love story while looking at the porno panels, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I don't know how much of it you'd like me to read, but first, well, the thing that set... What? Well, what? just give us a taste of how you took all these influences, and, and, and another one as well, which is this sort Dick of... Tracy. Dick Tracy thing. thing, yes. Yeah, I wanted that kind of blueprint expressionism that uh, Chester Gould had to offer in Dick Tracy. Exactly, so yeah. I was interested in a very specific idea that I'd uh, glommed onto about two years before when I looked in a dictionary and found out the story means uh, not just a narrative, but uh, it's why, the reason that it's like story as in stories of a building goes back 
basically to the first comic strips. They were like the ones that were done on stained glass with a superhero who could walk on water and then turn it into wine and do stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and since they were these windows and churches that would go along this horizontal row of the church, it was the story of that building. And then I realized there's something really basic in comics, which are a narrative, a story medium using cartoons to do these things that are structured, right? So I was very interested in the architecture of this stuff. And so architecture is, in a way, the visual key to this thing. You're seeing actually every building that was I could see out the window of my uh, single-room occupancy hotel room. Uh, and one, like I said, the Roxy and then the bar that was near that and then the, uh, the market that was next to that and then the little sign painter's shop. So uh, you get it in a kind of fragmented way, but you basically can construct that whole street. And then as I was instructed by... Uh, trial and error, the art of writing and selling, in the fact that, quote, a beautiful female creature meets a beautiful male creature. They do not at once fall in love. The picture is exactly what I thought couldn't be published in a book of uh, uh, male and female private parts um, um, intersecting. Uh, and then it goes, so that's the beautiful female creature meeting the beautiful male creature. But it is obvious to the reader from the beginning that they ought to fall in love. Then moving on to the next caption, just to move the, through that quote, because readers are like that. They will be overjoyed and for some reason, patho for some pathological reason, downright surprised when, after carrying your story through the opening pages, you do have the beautiful male and female creature fall in love. Um, so just from that tiny bit of the quote over there, I figured like, okay, so we're going to have this uh, woman, Marsha, who's a midget, and she sits in the glass booth of the Roxy and sells tickets. And then down the street, there's Augie. He paints sign in a shop up the street, and he's a dwarf. So they have good reason to meet cute and fall in love, it seems. And what what's to make them meet cute? They're like five doors away. Well, I have this third character, Foul Bernie, and it says, that's all there is to it except for Foul Bernie the Gimp. He's foul when he's drunk, and he's always drunk, so he's called Foul Bernie. Now, Bernie walks past the um, sign shop, spills some red paint that spills downward past the... Uh, uh, um, Roxy, and that's the connecting link. The paint is what connects them, all right? And Foul Bernie, just because it's a comic and you've got to have some humor, tells a dirty joke while he's walking down the street. So here were all the elements of a comic, but put on a dissecting table. Yeah, you've got the elements of a comic, as you say. You've got this how-to manual for commercial writers. You've got these pornographic images. It looks like it makes sense to me, you know, but it is hard to read. Like, I realized at some point when I was trying to talk about, like I said, what's a very hard book for me to be on the road talking about, um, I figured, like, what it comes down to, is I make, I was making and still try to make in my own way comics that are not meant to be read. They're meant to be reread. Mm, mm. I, I think some people hearing the description might say, well, that sounds like the kind of thing that comes out of, um, let's say, a college where you've got a, a kid with his head stuffed full of, uh, art theory and literary theory, and then who decides to make an artwork based on that theory. But you were coming from a completely different direction. Right. A, a real ink-stained wretch, mm -hmm. a true, you know, down-in-the-trenches comic strip guy mm -hmm. who wasn't coming from an academic background. Not at all. I was yeah. kind of, like, taking what I could use once I discovered that there was this treasure trove on the other side of the high-low hyphen. But I wasn't... Um, I wasn't trying to lord it over anybody. I was excited about the ideas that were here and, and just wanted to, like, see what happened when they intersected uh, in a way that would create an explosion. And like I said, I, even now when I'm looking at this stuff, I, which I don't consider juvenile, it's just the stuff I was working on before Mouse, what I, I see when I look at it is it still has all of those ingredients that allow it on some level to be ingratiating and engaging and inviting you to share the pleasures of discovery 
uh, with what I was discovering. Mm, mm, yeah, and and I'll say uh, that it it maybe the, the fact that you weren't coming primarily from book learning, mm. though obviously you were learned. Uh, I'm not saying you weren't, but you were coming from a deeper artistic impulse is what keeps these really vital for me. Oh, thanks. That's really nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> really, I, to have it articulated is really nice. I was very nervous about this book coming out because I still think of it as uh, there's a few pieces in here that I think are as among my best work, even though I have to like go back and say, gee, I did my best work mm. 30 years ago. What a bummer. But uh, but it was very specifically, some of these things were very hard won. They didn't come mm. as like, oh, I'll do another page for this book. It would be like a month of work sometimes to get just one page to happen because I was working off of uh, uh, something that didn't have an instruction manual. I didn't know how to make what I was uh, intuiting. And uh, as a result, when the first Breakdowns was made, it was made specifically to take it out of the context of underground comics. I wanted to make what at the time was an anomaly. It was like a large size, just like this new one, uh, Life Magazine, 10 by 14 size hardcover book with these short pieces in it. And there's no context for that, you know? And as, of course, as a result of there being no context for it, it came out and nobody quite wanted to see this thing. <laughs> and I realized, well, Christ, if, I, if I'm going to continue being a cartoonist, I better tell a story because that's what people are coming to the comics for. And that's, in effect, what led to me doing that Long Mouse book after. There's a great number of, of, of interesting autobiographical stories in here, but one is very funny from your early days as an uh, upstart comic artist. Um, a newspaper published a, an article about you with the headline, Budding Artist Wants Attention. Yeah, humiliating. <laughs> I was like uh, 12 years old, and all I wanted to do was see my work in print, so I went to uh, the weekly local newspaper and brought my cartoons in, and instead I get this kind of article that I can't show to anybody. I, I wish I still had it so I could show it to you, but uh, but at that time, the one good thing was they printed one of my drawings there, and I just needed to see my work in print because for me, talk about the work... Well, the highbrow side, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. I just wanted to work for print. I didn't want to make paintings ever. Um, and well, so, speaking of that, uh, that that line you just uttered, when did you finally get around to reading Walter Benjamin? Oh, that must have been around the same time I was, uh, well, maybe even a little after. I, I guess I must have read it when I moved back to New York, so that would be 75, 76. So, so there was uh, the world of critical theory was sort of informing your work. It mostly came from, like, reading uh, bios of artists. Uh, I read one book about uh, the, of Cezanne's compositions where the same painting was diagrammed, like, about 20 different ways, and that was really uh, eye-opening for me. Once I decided that paintings are just big comic book panels, getting to see how that could work was really important. <laughs> I wasn't reading... I don't even know if Derrida existed in English in the 70s, probably not, but that whole side of it... Uh, took over later, you know. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. was this was like a earlier generation of uh, serious art making that didn't have uh, the branch of philosophy so firmly stamped in place that you had to learn a new vocabulary just to read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Walter this Benjamin, is... when I heard about it, it, sounded interesting. It was about mechanical reproduction. I should know about that because I'm interested in mechanical reproduction. Um, well, I was thinking jokingly that you could have titled uh, this new collection or this this what do we call this? What do I call this? Um, I want to call it a collection, but what is the right word I for it? It's probably being put in the graphic novel section, although I'd hate that phrase. I'll call it a retrospective. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, kind of. Okay. Well, I think you could have called it um, Veteran Artist Still Wants Attention. <laughs> Here I am on the road, folks. I'm talking on the radio so people will look at my book. But actually, I, I don't think that's fair because um, 
there was I a long too, period. I got way too much attention as a result of now, so it's not <laughs> quite that. Well, well, there was a long period when you were doing more to present the work of other artists to get the attention for other comic artists than you mm-hmm. were for yourself. I mean, those of us who were reading you back in the raw days, at right. least I can tell you about myself and some mm-hmm. friends, were saying, we want more Spiegelman. Well, it was just part, like what happened was Raw came along when I'd all, just started uh, doing Mao's as a long work, you know? Right. And so we did Raw magazine just because by default nothing interesting was happening. So Francoise, my wife, and I started uh, this large size magazine, same size as Breakdowns, with some of the same impulse to try to get people to take the measure of comics. And we found the most interesting people we could in Europe, uh, people who could no longer be published in the underground because they were moving away from the sex, drugs, rock and roll, uh, uh, hardcore political comics into other areas, and tried to like create this kind of, uh, in a way, Potemkin Village. Look, there's a whole world of comics mm. out there, but we found like the 20 people who seemed to be doing them at that time outside the still good underground cartoonists that people might know from that format. And in doing that, while doing Mouse, while starting Mouse, I just couldn't do more work. I'm too slow. And I thought that we were just going to do Raw to demo what comics should be and then leave it as just a, a one-time demo. When we were going on again, and I realized I was still working on Mouse, Mouse is small scale. It had to be small scale. It was drawn to be intimate and ultimately uh, literary book-sized, even though I didn't angle for it to be called a graphic novel. Right. But I was publishing a chapter in every issue of Raw, and I found that was useful because uh, basically Raw was a biannual, because I found out that I and most people didn't know whether biannual meant twice a year or once every two years. <laughs> so even our distributor didn't know. So I figured this is a deadline I can meet, you know. Um, so whenever I had a chapter done, we begin doing the the work of getting everything together to get an issue out and the point really was to show a lot of different ways of what comic of what making a comic could be and that's still exciting for me like at this point where things are really flourishing you know while the world has turned to absolute sludge in the last eight years comics have become uh uh, anointed as possibly the biggest growth area in bookstores under the name graphic novels, uh, where a comic is allowed to be serious and it's allowed to be a lot of other things as well. And that's a kind of amazing, rich moment for, for the medium. And I'm just hoping that the fact that comics can be serious means of, of personal expression isn't the cause of why the world around me has become so unserious <laughs> about serious things. It's funny because when I was reading breakdowns in a public place, um, some very, very old sort of reflex overtook me, and I looked around and said, here I am, a grown man. Is anyone going to think I'm juvenile for reading this big comic book? And I realized, no, I don't have to feel that way no, these days. No, now you just going to seem like yeah. a young uh, <laughs> Ivy League hipster, you know? Like, that's what people are doing. I remember when I was a kid, there was a period where, like, uh, I would um, hide... Uh, my my comics inside of books so nobody would know I was reading them. <laughs> and then later on, um, you know, I, I it was like what people had to do with Playboy, basically. You know, like, oh, you can't let anybody see you read it. It's got to be hidden inside something else. So, yeah, there's this moment where I had to hide my uh, Playboy inside a comic book, basically. And I had to flip <laughs> roles and do the opposite. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. We're hearing a conversation originally recorded in the fall of 2008 with the comics virtuoso Art Spiegelman. He has a new collection of his work out from the 1970s. It's called Breakdowns. I wondered what, t- what took you so long to release this, because um, I, like I say, a lot of us had gotten glimpses of the p- these pieces mm-hmm. over the years and always wanted to see them. So I'm, I'm glad it 
Better well, late than never. It was one of those things where the you know breakdowns like four hundred dollars on eBay for the last years. Uh, I bet, yeah. And, and now finally it gets a second shot at the world, which is nice. But it's not easy to talk about, you know. Mm-hmm. Like uh, even on TV, where you could show it rather than tell mm-hmm. it, it's not that. Uh, it, the problem is that even even now, what's going on in comics is the decompressed comic, the graphic novel. It's not about how many ideas can you stuff into how small a space, which is more of the aesthetic of this stuff. So it's counter the current current, even if it was part of what created the mm-hmm. current current. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and it doesn't have a subject. Like if I was here talking about Mao's, we'd be talking about the death camps and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. one's fa- uh, second generation father and uh, son. Right. And if I was here, when I was here, we talked about 9-11 and politics. So yeah. um, here, what are we talking about? We're talking about memory and ideas and uh, uh, the nature of aesthetics and high and low art. It's a, it's a much harder sell than uh, world historical events. What's your name mean in German? Uh, Spiegel is mirror, so I really like the fact that my name uh, becomes this kind of uh, jumble anagram puzzle of art mirrors man. Yeah, you know, I, I was going to point it out, but I thought, oh, I'm only the millionth person to probably have figured that out. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, usually I, I can mention it when it comes up, but uh, <laughs> most people just say, oh, he's Jewish. I'd say you're predestined <laughs> to be this kind of artist by a name like that. Uh, well, it certainly <laughs> helps. I guess I could have become a mirror maker like the forebearers who first had that name. <laughs> There's among the many uh, pieces from the mid '70s collected in breakdowns is a comic you wrote and 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 represented in the course of Mouse. It's one you wrote after your your mother's suicide. Right. The strip about my mother's suicide was so intense a project for me that it's the real beginnings of a whole other way of trying to understand what comics might be. Mm-hmm. When I did it, I wasn't even positive I'd, I'd publish it. Uh, I wasn't trying to get it published. I just needed to make this thing, and then I realized. Comics are for art in the age of mechanical reproduction. It's got to be printed to finish it. That's how I was thinking. And the uh, visual vocabulary of it was thoroughly informed by my recent discovery of German expressionism. It seemed to be able to have the emotional pitch and range that I needed to deal with uh, those events of her committing suicide when I was 20. And even the panel-to-panel structures and breakdowns were like moving toward uh, a new vocabulary. You know? mm-hmm. And so in that first part of the book, a lot of the memories have to do with revisiting my childhood with my mother and life of her suicide and uh, even one uh, sequence that has to do with me and my uh, then girlfriend in San Francisco when I finally remember that my mother had committed suicide because I'd managed to actually somehow really blot it out even though it had happened just uh, several years before. Really? Uh, well, well, it's called Prisoner on the Hell Planet. Yeah. And um, as you say, you, you, you wrote it maybe a, a couple years after your mother's suicide? Well, my mother suicide. died in 68 and that strip must have been 72. So four years. Four years. For four years, if somebody said, where's your mother? I'd say she committed suicide, but it didn't connect to anything. And then when it came back in a flash, it changed what I was going to work on. I just threw everything else aside. And I was rather unbearable about it while I was working on it. But there there was. I just needed to get this thing made. And I was reluctant to have it in the Mao's book uh, because I, I, eventually it was like one of those when you're stuck with a lemon, make lemonade. But uh, I knew I had to deal with the fact of my mother's suicide as part of telling that story of my life with my parents and their life in uh, World War II and all of that. And I couldn't imagine redrawing Hell Planet with Mice. That didn't make any sense. And I didn't want to make too little of it by just referring to it in passing. And I realized I dealt with it in a way that was... Um, com- I, I 
nailed something in that four pages. So I reduced it way, way down and, and with a framing device of my father having discovered the strip and uh, talking to my yeah. stepmother about those days, was able to print it. But I was very unhappy with it. And whenever I looked through Mao's, I rushed past those pages because it's wow. too small. Uh-huh. It's not because it's too heavy. I'm I'm going to deal with the heaviness, but the the fact that the artwork was so cramped by being brought down to that book size that was appropriate. You know, for the I rest agree. I agree with you. In fact, when I first saw Prisoner on the Hell Planet in Mouse, I looked all over the place to find the original version because I oh, wanted really? to see huh. it in larger format. Yeah, yeah and it, it needed. It was yeah. made to be larger. It was too small, even in underground comic yeah. size, and that was one of the things that made breakdowns become that size. Let's say there were two or three strips that just couldn't be the size that even that they were intended to, but uh, uh, with a larger scale. And it's become something else. Since comics exist somewhere between literature and uh, art, you know, um, I just needed the pictures to be uh, large enough so that the blacks and whites could Mm -hmm. actually vibrate properly and not just clog up into uh, a kind of uh, congealed mess. Yeah, we should describe it. uh, As you say, it's four pages long. It deals with... um your mother's suicide when you were 20, and you had just gotten out of uh, a mental institution. Right. Is that right? So you were, I mean, as I wasn't in great shape. No. (laughs) As traumatic (laughs) as that would be for anybody, it was even more so, I guess. And uh, the style is, uh, it's black and white. Is it scratchboard? It's scratchboard. So it looks like like woodblock. Yeah, Yeah, it looks like Mm -hmm. woodcuts, and influenced by German Expressionism. And I... Am, am I right in thinking uh, German Expressionist film as much yeah, as German Expressionist true. graphic yeah, art? Yeah, yeah, and also like there was, you know, there was there was a generation of illustrators in, in uh, America and Europe who were also interested in that Expressionist style for illustration. And I was looking at things like Lind Ward's uh, wordless novels, if you know those. And, mm-hmm. uh, there's some other lesser known people, that, but it, it was. You know, now you look back and you see that people are beginning to bring it back into the history as er- an early alternate kind of graphic novel. And what those things were was one picture page where each image had to be a, a freestanding and intense graphic of its own, but would tell a story. And the storytelling styles were definitely inspired by silent cinemas, what made that medium come into existence of uh, the wordless picture novel. Mm-hmm. And so that actually helped uh, move this in a certain direction and, and look the way it did. And also, there's an, a cartoonist who... You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I should have found a way to pay my respects to him in this thing as well. There's a comic book artist named Bernard Krigstein. Do you know his? I don't think I do. Well, in the days of those EC horror comics mm-hmm. and the mad comics, Krigstein was a comic book artist who was kind of uh, an aspiring painter and a serious painter who went slumming into comic books to earn a living in the post-war years. And he um, soon found himself fascinated by the medium. And as a result, he began taking it very seriously. He didn't have a humorous bone in his body. Um, and as a result, he wasn't my first choice of comic artist of what I would turn to. But he really was willing to take chances that got him to discover a whole new vocabulary for comic storytelling. He did one story called Master Race in about 1954, 55. You do mention that in in, in the... Um in the uh, preface to breakdowns, oh, I do think? I? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, oh, okay. I'm glad. Or, I or, or, or maybe in the uh, afterward. It's somewhere in the. All right. I know. Material. I've written. I, writ- I wrote a whole essay about it in the New Yorker yeah. at some point. But uh, the specifics of this thing was it was the first time that uh, um, the death camps kind of entered into popular culture. Uh, 
and 54. This just was not really something one would expect to find in a comic no. book. Now, Krigstein was one of those guys who didn't write his own story, and he got a story that somehow referred to the death camps, and it was aimed at one of those twist-ending kind of things, and he saw in this like a chance to really demo what he was about, and he made, a, a, I think it was an eight-page comic out of what had been intended as six pages, and put lots of little panels on the page so he'd have more space and room to show what he needed to show, and that comic strip blew me away. Uh, that comic book story. In fact, before I got kicked out of college, when I was in an art course, I was told to take one example of a master of uh, one of the forms we'd been studying, which was sculpture or painting, and uh, write an essay in detail analyzing. And I got permission from the prof to do that story. So I wrote a very detailed panel-by-panel analysis of Master Race without any kind of... Because this was a comic that didn't have any condescension to it. If anything, mm. one might think of it as moving toward pretension. But I learned certain things from looking at that, of like a new way of uh, dealing with uh, motion that had to do with uh, new descending a staircase rather than the little whiz lines behind mm. the comic's character. Mm. I learned about uh, ways of breaking up the page so that you'd like feel the staccato nature of the movement across the page. And all of those things opened up a whole new way of me approaching this thing that I was drawing out of a real urgency there was a much more expressive vocabulary so mm-hmm. so if you're listening and can google bernard krigstein you'll probably see panels how's it spelled how's it spelled k-r-i-g-s-t-e-i-n okay okay i'm trying to remember because when i met him i dedicated a copy of the first version of breakdowns to him and he got annoyed at me because i misspelled his name but i think i got it right now <laughs> i hope so <laughs> well well back to, to prisoner on the hell planet influenced by krigstein um it's a really gut-wrenching piece of work, mm-hmm. I mean, for readers like myself. And I was interested to see in, in this book, um, where you describe going back and looking at it again in 2005, mm-hmm. 33 years after you originally created it, mm-hmm. it got to you, too. Well, yeah, looking at the strip and looking at some photos of my mother in order to be able to do this introductory strip, like all of the pain was still there, you know, that uh, in a way... Part of the point of that introduction was that, like, uh, what is it? The past isn't even past, mm. some quote. Mm. Uh, uh, it, and basically, this was about how all these layers exist in us at once. You know, like, we're seven years old, we're 50 years old, we're 18 years old. And we slide between those states all the time. And that's what I wanted to do in the introduction. And I found it was very uh, emotionally true for me that I was still the 20-year-old who was, like, uh, trying to understand what ton of bricks had hit me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, suicide is is devastating in all cases. But I think uh, reading it in the context of Mouse was particularly tragic for um, many readers because your mom had survived Auschwitz only to, to kill herself many years later. Yeah, although, you know, there was suicide in the family before Auschwitz. So, like, uh, I don't know to what degree I'm, I'm, I'm having to fight a genetic battle to, like, mm. not uh, kill myself. And I tell you, if the election goes bad... <laughs> don't count on me. It's being on your show again. <laughs> oh, come on, Art. Please, don't no, say that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just like, I'm double tracking with my thoughts here. I would say, though, that like, um, she had a tendency toward this even before the war mm. of being depressive and whatever. So, um, there are a number of factors at work, including as, you know, I think, in a panel that has like collaged various elements in Prisoner on the Hell Planet, there's just one little panel subdivided into other panels trying to understand what she had done. And there's 
in in one little box there's a picture of her bl- uh, in bloody bathwater, uh, having just slashed her wrist. There's a pile of dead bodies with a swastika above it. There's me in bed with my mother, like wearing my little Auschwitz cap as a kid. And then there's her slashing her wrist with the number on her arm. And passing through that is menopausal depression. Hitler did it. Mommy. And then uh, am I allowed to say the Go ahead. Bitch, I don't know what radio allows oh, for no, or not. Oh, no, that's allowed. That one's allowed? Okay. <laughs> uh, so those are, those are the words with me sort of like in, uh, you know, in a semi-fetal position in front of that image. So I was trying to understand that it's multi-cause. It's caused by it's, – what, what's the word for that? It's over-determined mm-hmm. what the causes were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean uh, – So, of course, I assumed it was my fault. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly one thing that comes out in Mouse is, you know, your parents having survived a big historical – uh, you know, trauma leaves you guessing as to how much of their character was shaped by that. How much was just them? Was was your dad a cheapskate because he'd had to make it all the way through the uh-huh. death camps, or was he just a cheapskate? You yeah, know, well, I, from what I can figure, <laughs> like it distorts and amplifies traits. You know, like uh, any uh, extreme experience. Uh, and so I would say that like certain things came out in Vladek, and that they were actually probably unpleasant aspects of him before the war became incredibly uh, useful to him during the war mm. and were appropriate to the occasions. And then after the war, reverted back to being sort of like out of step with uh, civilization. Mm. Mm. Um, Got heavy, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly one of the, the big overarching um, themes of your career, clearly mentioned in this book, and, and obvious to anyone who's read you for a long time, is this battle to break down that uh, that wall that's been constructed in culture between highbrow and lowbrow, yeah. you know, vulgar art and high art. Yeah, I think maybe, are the walls down now? I can't tell because I keep living in different times at the same time. I, I think there's, there's some incredibly emblematic um, arc to your own life that may say that they're down, and that is that you start out as a kid reading Mad Magazine, um, picking up on mad style and actually spreading that style through popular culture yourself. Mad Magazine sort of grew out of this, what I imagine to be a very sweaty kind of rundown office on the Lower East Side. That's right. Bill Gaines. Mm -hmm. And now you have a connection through your wife to the New Yorker, which is Park Avenue, Eustace Tilly, Uh from Alfred E. Newman, Basil Wolverton's Ugly Girl to Eustace Tilly. Your own life sort of links high and low completely. Uh And and maybe the wall is down. I think, you know... the way I experience it is, like at this point, uh, painting has become stupid, uh, <laughs> comics have become smart, uh, and nobody's interested in difficult work anymore because of the, uh, the, the amount of information that bombards us in 20 minutes. The idea of asking somebody to reread and slow down is definitely counter current. Uh, and so I don't exactly know where it all exists now, but I'm just sort of like trying to grapple with it at various fronts. And it's probably why Francoise has just taken on this new project, as well as being the art editor of The New Yorker. Uh, she started a publishing house to... Um, oh, I didn't know that. This is crazy to do it in uh, the 21st century to self-publish again. Uh, but she's doing something that no other publisher wanted to take on because it's a new category, which is not like just comics for kids, which is fine now, but comics for very young kids who are trying to learn how to read because we watched both our kids learn to read by destroying our comic book collection and uh, (laughs) I learned to read from comic books. But the idea of doing comics with that as the uh, goal, it's not about making art anymore. It's about doing something 
that's an applied art, using one's skills to make a highly clarified comic with an incredibly simple vocabulary that would allow uh, an early, early reader to begin to understand comics and thereby literature because you're actually feeling fluent with the words. And we just figured... This is one of the better th uses of energy because if people don't know how to read, they're at the mercy of that bombarding culture. You know, if they don't really know how to yeah. uh, grapple with thought in that way that has to do with words. I understand that we're moving into a more visual moment, but verbal culture is important to have. The fact that our education has been dismantled at least since Reagan's time till now is what we're bearing the fruits of and having to even worry about this nail-biter of an election, right? And so... She's been doing these books called Toon Books, which I guess people can find out about toonbooks.com. So this isn't Little Lit. No, no. Little Lit was for all ages. And it okay. was for comics to read to your youngster. Right. That was one thing. This is actually one step harder, which is a comic for a five-year-old or a six-year-old and up to seven years old being able to read for oneself. And mm. she's put out six books so far, two or three more are in the works now. And one of them is one that I did. Uh, when I ran into a roadblock on trying to figure out how to write the essay in the back of Breakdowns, I just stopped long enough to do a book in that series. So that's actually the other book coming out from a very small publisher uh, uh, called Jack and the Box, and it's a first comic for very young readers that in a way, if you don't mind me making these long sentences, uh, is inspired by the strip uh, in here called Cracking Jokes. Uh, mm. There's a strip that's a comic book uh, a story, instead of being a story, it's an essay in comics form about how humor works and the nature of humor. And it starts with a, a panel where there's a jack-in-the-box having come out of its box that... Uh, Written on the side of the box, it says, The child's jack-in-the-box provides a potent example of the joke in its primitive form. A momentarily threatening surprise proves itself to be harmless. The child learns to master its fears through laughter. And so that, to me, is the, the most primitive form of joke and story. A story is something that has a momentary complication that makes you tense and then resolves. Well, we began this interview with me talking about how you screwed with my head as a kid. And uh, it's somehow reassuring to hear that you're, you're still at it. Yeah, although here I'm trying to screw kids' heads on straight. It, like, it's funny to have a, a book for adults only and a book for five-year-olds at the same time. But this one really is about trying to, like, use the skills gathered to do something useful. Yeah. Well, Art, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, man. As usual, like, this is one of the best interviews I get to have on my book tour. <laughs> Art Spiegelman. His newest book is called Breakdowns, Portrait of the Artist as a Young... And by the way, Art Spiegelman spoke in our conversation about the early reader books published by his wife, Francoise Mouly. You can learn more about those at toonbooks.com. That's T-O-O-N hyphen books dot com. And for the 7th Avenue Project, I'm Robert Polly.